Several years ago, I was in the midst of one of the most disappointing seasons of both my life and in ministry. You see, I was about six months into a series of just blindsiding events and painful setbacks that honestly really turned my entire life upside down. Perhaps you've been there. Have you ever been in one of those seasons of just upheaval and chaos when it seems as if misfortune and disappointments are just magnetically drawn to you? Well, that is precisely where I was. Disillusioned, dejected, and barely holding up under the weight of all the misfortune that kept piling up in my life. Well, in that season of life where nothing seemed to go right and everything seemed to go wrong, I reluctantly attended a ministry conference in Orlando. Due to this conference's popularity and the caliber of some of the speakers that were preaching that particular year, there were just tons and tons of people in attendance. I mean, it drew tens of thousands of pastors and church planners and ministry leaders from all over the country. And there I was in the midst of these exuberant crowds and all the ballyhoo that accompanies large conferences. And as I was there, I honestly felt like I stuck out like a sore thumb because there I was, discouraged, dejected, trying to avoid eye contact with the annoyingly happy people around me, pretending to be reading my conference bulletin to not engage in conversation. Well, as the conference began a 10-piece band took to the platform, and they sort of launched into some thumping worship music. And frankly, as the music began, I had no desire to sing along, but out of duty, I mustered the discipline necessary to kind of half-heartedly lip-sync to the words. Well, about three or four songs into this opening worship set, the band began to play this new song about turning to God in trials and focusing on the goodness of God. And although the song, King of My Heart, was new to me at that time, it has a melody that's easy to sing along to. And so, just like the songs before it, I read the lyrics on the screen and apathetically started to sing along. Well, before too long, as I continued to sing that song, something began to happen. Something began to change inside of me. Now, I don't know if it was the power of the song or the fact that this song was addressing the exact situation I found myself in, but as I sang, I began to feel my spirits actually lift. My mood was actually changing. I, I felt that I could see some light at the end of the tunnel and everything was going to be okay. But as I continued to sing that song, all of that positivity, all of that hope just came crashing down as King of My Heart entered into the bridge. You see, in the bridge of that song, one phrase is repeated over and over and over again. And here's the phrase that is repeated. Singing to God, here's the phrase, you're never gonna let you're never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let me down. Well, for me, in that moment, 
As I got to the bridge, I simply refused to sing along to those words because if I would have sung along, I would have felt like a total fraud. Although I knew that God had not broken a promise to me, although I knew that God had not lied to me, although I knew full well that God had done me no wrong, the fact of the matter was God had absolutely let me down in that season of my life, many times over, by the way. Well, last week, Pastor Tim launched a new sermon series entitled Fan Fiction. And in this series, we're addressing different sayings and beliefs and sort of half-truths that many sincere Christians hold to, but are actually not all that biblical. And today, the statement we're going to be considering is simply this, God will never let me down. So let's start right there. Let's ask the question, is it true that God will never let me down? Well, it depends, doesn't it? It depends on what you mean by let down. If when you say God will never let me down, what you are meaning to say is God will never break a promise, God will never falter, God will never fail to bring something to completion that he promised to bring to completion, then absolutely it is true. God will never let me down. But I don't think we use that phrase let down with that in mind. I mean, let's just be honest. When we talk about being let down, we have something in mind that is much more similar to the definition we find in the Oxford Languages Dictionary. This is how the phrase let down is defined there. Let down, fail to support or help someone as they had hoped or expected. Now, plugging that definition in, let's ask that question. Will God ever fail to support or help me as I hoped or expected? Absolutely, he will. In fact, the Bible is just replete with examples of men and women being let down by God in that sense. We could spend all morning here in the Old Testament and look at the life of Joseph in Genesis, or Bathsheba, or the prophet Jeremiah, or sort of the platonic ideal of suffering, Job, and we would see time and time again, God did not show up in the way that they had hoped or expected. In fact, it's kind of funny, when I was considering this passage for this particular message, I had a tough time selecting our main passage because there are so many stories of letdown in the Bible. How do you pick just one? But we needed to pick a text to anchor our time together this morning, and so I chose John chapter 11, where we're going to be this morning. And in John chapter 11, we have the story of the letdown that Mary and Martha and Lazarus experienced as Lazarus became ill and eventually died. We're going to begin in John chapter 11 in verses 1 and 2. There we read, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed, anointed rather, the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, 
whose brother Lazarus was ill. Well, who were Mary and Martha and Lazarus? Well, the text tells us they were three siblings that lived in a town called Bethany. And Bethany, just so you can place it, is about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus, these three siblings, lived in Bethany. And it's important that we understand how close they were with Jesus. They had a loving, almost familial-like kind of relationship with Jesus. And in fact, if you read through chapter 11, you'll see in verse 3, it says Jesus loved Lazarus. If you read in verse 5, there it says Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And if you continue to read through that chapter, you'll see that when Lazarus does die and Jesus comes to Bethany, Jesus weeps over Lazarus, and the onlookers say to themselves, see how Jesus loved Lazarus. Who were Mary and Martha and Lazarus? They were three siblings who loved Jesus and whom Jesus loved. They were also faithful followers of the Lord Jesus. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were some of his most devoted disciples. In fact, in verse 2, as we just read, we see that Mary is the same Mary who anoints Christ's feet with expensive perfume and dries his feet with her hair in this beautiful act of worship. Mary and Martha and Lazarus would have Jesus come to their home. They would host him. They would feed him. They would learn at his feet. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were some of the most devoted, loved disciples Jesus had. And that brings us to our first point this morning, and that is this. Regardless of our spiritual maturity, we all must go through the letdowns. Regardless of how long you've been walking with Christ, how much transformation you've experienced in your life, how godly you are, regardless of that, all of us must go through the letdowns. You see, I have observed in Christians this pattern of sort of crucifying yourself when you go through a letdown. I noticed this primarily in more mature believers. And it usually looks something like this. A mature believer goes through a trial. They go through some devastating loss. They go through some letdown. And oftentimes what can happen is they start to blame themselves. And they think, if only I would have been godlier, I could have avoided this entire letdown. Or they think to themselves, if only I would have been more faithful, then maybe the letdown would have still come, but I wouldn't have been so upset by the whole thing. There's this tendency, I believe, in many of us to sort of crucify ourselves and blame ourselves and think we must not have been spiritual enough because we're going through a letdown. But our passage makes it clear, if people as godly as Mary and Martha and Lazarus go through the letdowns, then you can be sure we too will go through the letdowns in life. Continuing in John chapter 11, we pick up in verse three and there we read this. So the sisters sent to him, that is Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love, that is Lazarus, is ill. But what's going on here? Well, we already said that Mary and Martha and Lazarus are in Bethany near Jerusalem. 
Well, at the time that Lazarus gets sick, Jesus isn't in the area of Bethany. In fact, he's all the way on the other side of the Jordan River, a one to two day journey by foot. And so what happens? Mary and Martha know that Jesus is the Christ. They know that he's healed others. And so when their brother Lazarus gets sick, they do the exact right thing and they turn to Christ. Now, presumably, they didn't want to go to Christ because they wanted to stay back in Bethany and care for Lazarus. So since they had no iPhone, they couldn't text, they couldn't FaceTime, they sent word through a messenger. And a messenger brings the report from Bethany to Perea on the other side of the Jordan to Jesus and says, Lazarus is sick and he's getting worse and worse. And let's see what Jesus says in response. Picking up in verse four, when Jesus heard this, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So again, what's happening here? Mary and Martha and Lazarus are in Bethany. Lazarus is on life support, and he's getting worse. They send a message to Jesus on the other side of the Jordan, saying, Jesus, the one whom you love, Lazarus, is sick and what does it sound like Jesus' reply is in verse four? Verse four, what does Jesus say to the messengers to tell Mary and Martha? It seems obvious. Verse four, when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness, in other words, what Lazarus is suffering through, this illness does not lead to death. Jesus appears to be saying the only thing you could understand him to be saying, and that is this. Yes, Lazarus is ill. Yes, he's getting worse. But take heart, he's going to recover. What other conclusion could we reach from Jesus's words? But if you know the story, you know full well, Lazarus does not recover. Lazarus, who's on life support, gets worse and worse and worse and he eventually dies. Consider the confusion and frustration that Mary and Martha must have experienced. Maybe that message got to them after Lazarus had already died, or maybe beforehand, but either way, can you imagine the confusion? I thought Jesus said Lazarus was gonna live, and we have him now without a pulse. What is going on here? They did everything right. In their time of trial, they turned to Christ. Christ seemingly said, Lazarus is gonna make it. Don't worry about it. And yet, Lazarus dies. Have you ever been there in your life? Have you ever found yourself in the midst of some trial? And in your desperation, you turn to the right person. You turn to Christ. You responded well, and you poured out your heart in fervent prayer. You prayed, God, please be with the results of this biopsy. 
God, please help me as it relates to this job opportunity. God, please help me as it relates to my romantic relationship. I really want to marry this person. And as you pray, you get this sense in your gut, in your heart of hearts, that God has said something to the effect of, I've heard your request. I'm going to grant your request. And you feel the excitement and the hope and the relief. But as time continues... The biopsy does come back, and it's positive. The employer does not call you back for a second interview. The person you thought you were going to spend the rest of your life with falls in love when another. Well, when that happens, take heart because you are in good company. You are in the company of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And that brings us to our second point this morning. Even when God speaks clearly, as Jesus did to the messenger, even when God speaks clearly, boy, we tend to jump to the wrong conclusions. From time to time, I'll meet Christians that are very quick to say things like, God told me this, or God told me that. God showed me this, or God showed me that. And whenever I hear that, I'm so conflicted because on the one hand, if God has truly revealed something to them, I don't want to mess with that. Perhaps God has revealed himself to them. But when I hear someone that does that just regularly without any hesitation, I also think to myself, I would not be that cavalier if I were you. Because the reality is, even if God did speak clearly to you, the reality is much of the time we tend to jump to the wrong conclusions and connect the wrong dots in our minds. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, the Apostle Paul talks about the fact that our understanding in this life is limited, and our understanding in the age to come will not have those same limitations. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, the Apostle Paul says this, for now, speaking of this life, this era, this age, for now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then in eternity, we will see face to face. Now, I know in part then I shall know fully. Grace Fellowship, even when God speaks clearly and directly, we often miss the point and jump to the wrong conclusions. You see, the reality is God is so other, so different from us. As it says in Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, we read this, God speaking says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We see through a mirror dimly. We know in part who can know the mind of God. His thoughts are not our thoughts. If Jesus could give an audible message 
to messengers that would relay that message in a day or two to Mary and Martha, and they could jump to the wrong conclusion, then we too should realize it's very possible, even when we hear a word from the Lord, for us to connect dots that God has not connected. Now, before we leave this point, I want to make one sort of caveat here, lest I be misunderstood, and that is this. If God has spoken to you, if God has revealed something to you, if God has a calling or an anointing on your life and he's called you for some specific purpose, if God has done that, it is perfectly okay, normal, and healthy for you to spin some scenarios in your mind. It's perfectly healthy and normal to kind of brainstorm and ponder how God might bring something to pass. But just know, as you do that, all of us see through a mirror dimly. John chapter 11, concluding in this passage with verses five and six, there we read this. Jesus, hear me now, loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was? That is not what we expect to read, is it? We expect to read something like this. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he put on his cape, rushed back to Bethany, where he swooped in and saved the day. That's what we expect, right? Be honest. Or we expect it to say something like this. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he performed a long-distance healing like he did in Luke chapter 7 for the centurion's son. That's what we expect to read. But instead, we read, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. In other words, when Lazarus was on life support and they called out for help, Jesus tarried and let Lazarus die. This brings us to our third and final point for this morning in our text, and that is this. Christ loves us too much to let our comfort usurp our good. I'm going to say that again. Christ loves us too much to allow our comfort to usurp our good. Now, don't misunderstand here. It's not that Jesus is callous and unfeeling. No, when he goes to see Lazarus, he weeps. It's not that Jesus is unconcerned with the comfort of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He's some monster, some ogre who's not affected at all by their suffering. No, that is not the case. We know our God is very much concerned with our comfort. In fact, 
Listen to how God describes himself, or rather how Paul describes God in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 4. There we read this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Grace Fellowship, God is concerned with our comfort. He sends the Holy Spirit, which is our comforter. He commands us in the body to comfort one another. He describes himself as the God of all comfort. God is concerned with his kids' comfort. But I hope you know that that is not all God is concerned with when it comes to his kids' You see, God's love doesn't just stop short at our comfort. It doesn't bow the knee at our comfort. God's love for us is so great that sure, he cares about our comfort, but he also cares about having intimacy with us. He loves us so much that he wants intimacy. He loves us so much that he wants us to become more glorious men and more glorious women. He loves us so much that he wants us to flourish and to thrive and to become everything he has for us in this life. Comfort, as important as it may be, is only one facet, one component of God's all-encompassing, holistic Love. You see, Christ is like a wise and loving mother. And wise and loving mothers, while they do care about their children's comfort, they don't only care about their children's comfort, do they? I mean, think for a moment with me. Some of the important steps in a child's maturation are some of the most uncomfortable Teaching an infant to learn how to sleep through the night on their own is very uncomfortable for that child. Teaching a child how to be potty trained is very uncomfortable for the child as well as mom and dad. But there are things more important than just immediate comfort. Think about riding a bike. That's scary. That's uncomfortable. But a wise and loving mother is willing to allow their child to scrape a knee, to bloody a lip, because while comfort is important, she loves that child and wants that child to grow up into maturity and to flourish and to become everything that child can be. God is a parent like that to his children. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. There we read this. My child, don't reject the Lord's discipline and don't be upset when he corrects you for the Lord corrects those he loves just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. Christ loves us too much to allow our immediate comfort to rob us of our greatest good. And so I return to the question I asked at the beginning of this message. Will God let us down 
If by that you mean, will God allow us to experience painful times where he doesn't show up as we had hoped or expected, then the answer is clear. Yes, in this life, God will let us down. And seeing as how that is the case, I wanna spend the remaining few minutes we have sharing with you three ways we can cope with the letdowns in life. Three ways to cope with the letdowns in life. First, when it comes to navigating the letdowns of life, I would urge you to take note of dodged bullets. In the Psalms, we read in Psalm 121, verses one through three, these beautiful verses, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. In other words, he won't let your foot slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. How beautiful of a truth is that? That although we have blind spots, God does not. Grace Fellowship, there are times in our lives where we experience very painful letdowns. But in some of those cases, over the course of time, you realize that not getting that job, that relationship not working out, that offer on a home not being accepted because it was outbid, that sometimes when that happens, you realize you just dodged a bullet. Why? Because while we have blind spots, God does not, and he loves us and will keep our feet from slipping. Take note of dodged bullets. Second, when the bigger and better comes, give thanks. There's another kind of letdown that I've observed and experienced where you're let down and it's painful and you're disappointed and you're distraught and you think to yourself, God, I can't see what it would have hurt for you to just say yes to this. But then over the course of time, much to your surprise and shock, God brings something along that's bigger and better and even greater. God is that kind of a God. We read in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, speaking of God, now to him who is able to do, catch this, far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ. In other words, we have a God who is able to do far more abundantly than our little pitiful dreams and our little pitiful hopes. He is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or even could conceive in our minds, more than we could think. And my suspicion is, if you've been a Christian for some time, you've probably experienced this kind of letdown. It was crushing when it didn't work out, but through the course of time, you realize God brought something along even better. When that happens, I wanna invite you to give glory to God by giving thanks. Think of the resurrection of Lazarus as an example of this before we leave this point. Mary and Martha prayed, presumably, for Lazarus to just be healed, to reverse the sickness and for him to get well. It seems that's what they were expecting. 
and hoping for. I mean, after all, Jesus wasn't doing resurrections left and right throughout his ministry, but he was healing an awful lot of people. They experienced the letdown of seeing Lazarus die and be buried, but Christ did something far greater when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Grace Fellowship, when the bigger and better comes, I want to invite you to glorify God by giving thanks. Third and finally, in times of misfortune, bring God your worship and complaints. What happens when Lazarus doesn't recover? When Lazarus dies and is buried, and when Jesus doesn't come to raise him? These are the kind of letdowns I'm considering now the letdowns that are devastating, inexplicable, where your life is just shrouded in pain and loss, where there's no cute Sunday school explanation, or you can't see some big redemptive purpose or any purpose whatsoever in this painful letdown. Well, when you go through those letdowns, I know of nothing better to do than to bring God both your worship and complaints. In the Old Testament, no one suffered the way Job did. Job suffered untold loss and grief and trauma. And we often look to Job as an example of how to endure suffering in a way that glorifies God. In fact, there's a verse that's partially quoted all the time from the life of Job, and that's this verse we're going to put on the screen. Job chapter 13, verse 15. I've heard this quoted many times over as sort of a, an encouragement to live in faith, sort of a resolution to trust God no matter what. Job, in the midst of his loss and pain, said this, speaking of God, though he slay me, in other words, even if he kills me and I'm gonna die, though he slays me, I will hope in him. And that gets quoted an awful lot. But let's put the full verse on the screen to see what Job actually said here. In Job 13, verse 15, this is what he said in its entirety. Job, in his suffering, said, Though God slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. When misfortunes came to Job, he worshiped God. He did not curse God with his mouth. That is true. But he raised his complaints, his lamentation to God as well. And if you're in a season of misfortune and inexplicable loss, I know of nothing better to do than to invite you to come to God with your worship in one hand and your complaints in the other. Let's pray. Father, whatever the letdowns in our life look like right now, would you teach us how to follow the example of Christ? God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear when we have dodged a bullet? And may that cause us to grow in our trust in you and our ability to walk by faith when we can't understand why you would say no. God, when you bring along the bigger and better, let us not abort that process by failing to bring it to a place of worship. God, when you pour out your grace on us and bring something along 
bigger and better than we expected. God, please help us to have hearts that want to worship you and mouths that cannot hold back from praising you because you are the God that does even greater things than we could ask or think. And God, for those of us that are here in the most devastating of letdowns or in the wake of the most devastating of letdowns, God, would you help us realize the beauty that you find in that worship when we bring to you in our deepest, most hurtful times, our worship as well as our complaints. And God, will you help us know how to honor you and navigate the letdowns of life. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.